This daily devotional is brought to you by Hope PR Ministry. We would love to hear from our listeners, and we ask that you would contact us at hoperwc at gmail.com with any feedback or questions you might have. We hope that you are edified by this content. The following podcast is part four of five of Professor Hanko's series, God's Everlasting Covenant of Grace. Before we begin, I want to uh, call your attention to the fact that the book which is mentioned in the outline towards the end of it is available. It's a little booklet, Keeping God's Covenant. It's um, published by the British Reformed Fellowship, and it's available from our seminary if you want to get it. It's the speeches that Professor Engelsma and I gave at the family conference in Hoddington, England, two years ago. And it has to do at length with, um, and in some detail, with our subject. Reason why I think if you are interested in this subject, as obviously you are, it would be well to get the book, is that it's almost entirely practical. The first chapter is the covenant we are called to keep. But then the titles of the chapters are Keeping God's Covenant in the Church, Keeping God's Covenant in Marriage, Keeping God's Covenant in the Home, Keeping God's Covenant and the Exercise of Discipline, and Keeping God's Covenant and the Antithetical Life. So it's almost entirely practical. And since we are not going to get a great deal of time to deal with the practical aspects of it, you might want to pursue your study further of God's covenant by getting that little book. It's very reasonable. I don't know what they're asking for it, but uh, it, it, it costs almost nothing. Now, to get at our material this evening, I want to uh, be positive, first of all, in our discussion tonight on the nature of the covenant. We have already defined the covenant, as you know, as a bond of friendship and fellowship between God and his people in Jesus Christ. And we have defined the covenant in that fashion in distinction from the idea of the covenant as an agreement or a pact or a treaty of one sort or another. When the scriptures define the covenant as a bond of friendship and fellowship between God and his people in Christ, the scriptures use probably the warmest and most living and vibrant language that it is possible to use. The formula that scripture repeatedly uses in connection with the relationship of friendship between God and his people is this. I will be your God, and ye shall be my people. That's a wonderful statement, of course, in its own right. You can understand the impact of that, for example. If I would say, as I have many years ago, to my fiancé, I will be your husband, and you will be my wife. That's precisely the implications of that covenant statement that appears and reappears throughout Scripture. You will find that formulation, for example, in Genesis 17, where God establishes his covenant with Abraham. I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And interestingly enough, even as the covenant with Abraham is the beginning of covenant history in the old dispensational scriptures, the full and perfect realization of the covenant in heaven, as it is described in Revelation 21, uses identical language. The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will be their God, and they shall be his people, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Between Genesis 17 and Revelation 1, the references to the covenant when Scripture is intent on defining it are almost always in those terms. 
But in order to press home upon the people of God the riches and warmth of the covenant, Scripture uses various figures. The most dominant figure and the most beautiful figure is that of marriage. You find that figure already in the old dispensation, in the prophecy of Hosea, in the prophecy of Ezekiel, and in many other places. God marries his people. He lives with them in the most intimate of all relationships, marriage. In that marriage that God makes with his people, he takes them to be his bride. He promises to love them forever. He promises to love no one else but them only. And he threatens the wicked with destruction because they are not a part of his bride. He promises to care for his bride, to supply all her needs. He promises to be present with her always whenever she goes about her obligations and responsibilities. He, he tells her that he will reward her with treasures of unspeakable worth when he takes her into living fellowship with himself everlastingly in glory. So much is that the case that scripture itself, as you well know in Ephesians 5, compares an earthly marriage between two children of God as a picture of the relation between Christ and his church through whom God dwells with his church. An interesting figure also which scripture uses is the figure of a family. God is the father in that family. The father who loves his family, who cares for his family, who assures his family that he will do all in his power to make that family happy and blessed. In that family, Christ is described as the elder brother, the one who opens the womb, as it were, of the counsel of God to prepare the way for all his brethren to follow. He gives to that family the status of sons and daughters in his house. 2 Corinthians 6 uses that expression when it describes the antithesis in terms of the impossibility of fellowship between Christ and Belial. Come out from among them and be ye separate, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord of hosts. Jesus even speaks of the fact that in heaven the family has awaiting it a home. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus says to his disciples in, in John 14. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, that is in Father's house, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Scripture even goes so far as to say that that relationship of family where God is father and we are his children who bask in the sunshine of his favor and love and fatherly care can be compared to that most intimate and joyous part of family life, mealtime, where the family gathers each in his or her own place for devotions, for calling upon the name of the Lord, for fellowship in the scriptures, for eating and drinking, for fun and laughter and joy, for enjoying to the full one another's fellowship. The two are combined in two striking places in scripture where that kind of feasting is called a wedding feast. You have that in Matthew 22, the parable of the wedding feast and the man without a wedding garment. 
But you have that also in Revelation 19 when the final perfection of God's covenant is described. It is described as the wedding feast of the Lamb where the bride has been clothed with the white linen garments of the righteousness of Christ. And the two, Christ and his bride, sit down together at the joyous meal of covenant fellowship. How far removed all those figures are from the cold and impersonal and mechanical relationship of two businessmen who sit down together to sign a mutual contract. If in our marriage, my wife and I at the very outset had sat across from the table from each other and read the terms of the contract to which each of us promised to adhere and then signed our names, how far, far removed such a thing, mechanical and cold, would be from the marriage itself into which we entered and in which we have now lived for so long. That's the covenant of grace, rich and glorious, beautiful, the sum of salvation. This is salvation, God's covenant with his people. All the blessings of salvation, whatever they may be, are blessings of the covenant, blessings that flow from the covenant, blessings that are ours because we are God's own covenant people. Now, last week we had on the board a description of some elements of the covenant over against the liberated view of the covenant. And while I do not want to put that on the board again, I want to call some specific attention to those elements of the covenant which I consider most important and which are necessary for a proper understanding of the covenant. First of all, the covenant is eternal. When I say the covenant is eternal, I do not mean by that that the covenant will last forever. God means that when he says, for example, to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee for an everlasting covenant. But when I say the covenant is eternal, I mean by that that the covenant is God's eternal purpose which he purposed to perform in Christ from before the foundations of the world. God in his own unchangeable and efficacious counsel determined to reveal himself in the highest possible way by revealing his own covenant life through Christ to his people. In the second place, that immediately calls to mind the fact that the covenant is determined and governed by election. That is, as far as those who belong to the covenant are concerned, the determining aspect of the covenant, the determining principle is the eternal decree of election. Here we differ widely, of course, from the liberated who insist in so many words that election does not belong to the covenant and mock us as Protestant Reformed churches for what they scathingly and scornfully call election theology. They cannot hold to the doctrine of election in relation to the covenant, of course, because every baptized child is incorporated into the covenant. And the liberated know as well as we do that not every baptized child is saved. So they rule election 
out of consideration altogether. We insist that election is the determinative principle for those with whom God establishes his covenant. Everything we have said up to this point is leading up to this. God reveals his own covenant life. How? Through Christ. There you have the elect right away. Because you can't even say the name Christ without at the same time saying elect. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy hath chosen us in him, that is Christ, from before the foundations of the world. So election is the determinative principle. In the third place, the covenant is unconditional. And now I want to say a few things about this. This is over against the insistence, of course, of practically the whole church world on a conditional covenant. This to me is a very personal matter too. This is not cold and abstract theology. If the covenant is conditional, I'm going to hell. That's simply the fact of the matter. I never have, I cannot possibly, and I never will fulfill any conditions for the covenant. That becomes very personal. I know that. I know that with every fiber of my being. My whole life is a testimony of its truth. If the covenant is not unconditional, we're lost. So we're not talking abstract theology. Be that as it may, when I say the covenant is unconditional, then I mean, first of all, that the covenant is unconditional in its establishment. When God establishes his covenant with his people, with his elect in Jesus Christ, he does that without any conditions. That is, there are no conditions that have to be fulfilled in order for that covenant to be realized in your life and in mine and in any other member of the church. That is proved emphatically by Genesis 15. I, I can't take the time to go into that in any kind of detail, but you re will recall that Genesis 15 contains that, that narrative of the history of the establishment of the covenant where Abraham was instructed to cut up animals, cut them in half and set them over against, the halves over against each other, and the birds over against each other. And then a deep sleep fell upon Abraham. And while Abraham was sound asleep, God passed between the pieces. And then you read in Genesis 15, in that day God established his covenant with Abraham. Now I ask you in all earnestness and seriousness, what conditions did Abraham fulfill when he was sound asleep as God walked alone between the pieces? that God used this form of a vision to establish his covenant is because of the fact that the reality of the covenant is sealed by an oath. In effect, God was saying to Abraham, if I am not faithful to my covenant and if I do not keep my covenant promises, let me be cut in pieces, or then I am not God. The veracity, the faithfulness of the covenant rests on God's own being. That is established in that marvelous passage in Hebrews 6. And that's one passage which I want briefly to read to you. Hebrews 6 
beginning with verse 13. This is the promise of the covenant. For when God made promise to Abraham, that's the covenant, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he inherited, the, he obtained the promise. And now it goes back to this matter of an oath. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them the end of all strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his, of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. Two things, the eternal counsel of God and an oath which God swears, both. He confirmed the faithfulness of his covenant by an oath that either I will be faithful to the covenant or I am not God, one of the two. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. And here is, don't you see, the powerful practical significance of it that we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered even Jesus. That's a marvelous passage. It is established unconditionally by God. But let us be clear on this. It is also maintained. And that's what I mean by unconditional. Maintained unconditionally by God. That is, once God has established his covenant personally with me or with you, that covenant is maintained in spite of everything and anything. God maintains it. Conditionally, no. A thousand times, no. The passage which our chairman read tonight underscores that. And I want to reread just that brief section in which this is so strongly set forth. This is the covenant with David, of course. God's promise to David to give him a seed who would establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Listen. His seed also will I make to endure forever, and his throne is the days of heaven. If his children, that's Christ, if Christ's children, reminds you of Galatians 3, if his children forsake my law, and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments. What then? Are those the conditions to the maintenance of the covenant? Oh no. Oh no. Then I will visit their transgressions with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that, I have, that is gone out of my mouth. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever. And his throne is the sun before me. Now if you can fit a condition in that, you can do that only by ruining the scriptures. Another extraordinarily powerful passage in this regard, that the maintenance of the covenant is unconditional, is the prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 16. It's a long chapter. Take us the rest of the night to read it. This is how God describes the covenant which he established with Judah. I'm only going to read excerpts here and there. 
And as for thy nativity, in the day thou wast born, thy navel was not cut, neither wast thou washed in water to supple thee. Thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. None I pity thee to do any of these unto thee, to have compassion upon thee. But thou wast cast out in the open field to the loathing of thy person in the day that thou wast born. And when I passed by thee and saw thee polluted in thy own blood, I said unto thee when thou wast in thy blood, Live! The baby was dead, you see, lying there in the side of the road with all of its blood still on it, dead. I said unto thee, live! Yea, I said unto thee when thou wast in thy blood, live! And then the, the prophet goes on to describe how God took care of that baby. That's his people, you know. And how he brought that baby up and how he fed that baby with the best of foods and how he saw that baby grow into a beautiful woman and how at last he married that woman. He married her. And he made her a queen and he decked her with the choicest of garments and he put a crown upon her head and he gave her spices and perfumes and riches and jewels and made her glorious in every respect. What did she do? What did she do? Read it and weep. She built a tent on the side of the road and summoned everyone who passed by to come into her tent and make love with her. She committed fornication of the grossest sorts. She played the harlot with the Assyrian and with the Babylonians, and with the Egyptians, and coveted their love rather than the love of him who had done so much. What then? What then? Did God say, you're a whore. I want nothing more to do with you. No. You come to the end of the chapter. Thou hast borne thy lewdness and thy abominations, saith the Lord. Nevertheless, there it is again, that marvelous nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with thee in the days of thy youth, and I will establish unto thee an everlasting covenant then thou shalt remember thy ways and be ashamed when thou shalt receive thy sisters, thine elder and thy younger, that's Samaria. And I will give them unto thee for daughters, but not by thy covenant. And I will establish my covenant with thee, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Isn't that Marvelous. Can, can you read that without being moved to the depths of your soul? Unconditional. The liberated say all the time, yes, but there are covenant breakers. Covenant breakers. Of course there are covenant breakers. We're all covenant breakers. Every day of the week I break the covenant. We all broke the covenant in Adam already when he ate of the forbidden tree. So all we do is break the covenant. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I will keep my covenant. That's the word of God. Unconditional in every respect. Finally, because I don't want to deal with every point, the question is, with whom? We have already said God establishes his covenant with the elect. I want to expand on that now a little bit and include in that what the scriptures include in that. In the first place, God establishes his covenant with the elect. 
throughout all the ages of history, and Christ, in fact, cannot return until the last elect is born. That's the force of 2 Peter 3, 9. God is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God bears with the wickedness of the world and the sufferings of his people in the interests of all the elect being brought into the covenant. But in addition to that, the scriptures tell us much more. They tell us also that God establishes his covenant with the entire creation. And that's the history, of course, of the flood. In those marvelous chapters that follow upon the flood through which Noah was delivered from a wicked world, God makes the promise that he will establish his covenant with his creation. That is, when God originally created the heavens and the earth and set man as head in the creation, man by his fall brought desolation and ruin and death and the curse into God's world, and man, because he is desperately wicked, takes a hold of God's creation and rapes it to make it serve his selfish, wicked, godless purposes. But God does not abandon his creation to man, and God does not simply give it over to man, but God establishes his covenant with the creation as well. That's the literal language of Genesis 9. The sign of that he has set in the heavens, the sign of the rainbow. There is a passage, however, in, second, in Colossians 1 that to me is very important in this connection, and I want briefly to call your attention to that. Colossians 1, verse 20. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, that is, God having made peace through the blood of Christ's cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. Now reconcile here means that God reconciles to himself that which is estranged from him by sin, so that he takes it into his covenant fellowship. As, for example, a husband whose wife has committed adultery reconciles her to himself by forgiving her sins and taking her back into his fellowship, the fellowship of marriage. God does that through Christ when he reconciles all things to himself. But the point of the text that I want you to notice is that God does this with respect to all things. He reconciles all things to himself. And Paul, who is aware of the fact that we might take that all things in less than its literal meaning, concludes the verse by saying, By Christ I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, I mean all things. So we may add to this not only the elect and the creation, but the angels as well, and the heavenly creation. So if you ask, with whom or with what does God establish his covenant? The answer is, he establishes his covenant with the elect. He establishes his covenant with the whole earthly creation. He establishes his covenant with the angels. And he establishes his covenant with the heavenly creation. So that all are embraced in and taken up by the power of God's everlasting covenant. Now he does that in such a way that each part of that which he brings into his covenant has its own place. As we noticed two sessions ago, 
God establishes his covenant, first of all, with Christ. He is the head. He is the mediator. He is the surety of the covenant of grace. He is the one through whom the whole revelation of God as a covenant God is accomplished. He is the one through whom alone God's covenant is realized in all of its perfection. Under Christ are the elect. So that when God establishes his covenant with Christ, he establishes them with the elect. And in addition to that, God establishes his covenant not only with Christ and the elect, but with the holy angels. In fact, in the, in the Belgic Confession, there is an article, we can't take the time to look it up now, an article which specifically says that these angels are elect. That's why they stood when Satan and his hosts fell. They were reprobate. The decree of election and reprobation encompassed the angelic world as well. They elect angels. And then the confession of faith goes on to say in a remarkable statement, the elect angels remain standing by the grace of God. Now you tell me, where does grace come from? Does it come from any other place but the cross of Christ? By him to reconcile all things to himself by Christ in the cross, whether they be things in heaven or things on earth. But the elect are higher than the angels. As Hebrews, the last verse of Hebrews 1 says, the angels, now already too, are ministering spirits because they serve the salvation of the elect. The relation between the angelic world and the elect here on earth is like the relationship between the nursemaid and a child. When a child is an infant or a small child, the nursemaid is boss and the nursemaid is instructed to care for the child and watch over the child and see to it that the child is kept from danger. But when the child grows up, that relationship is reversed. And the child is the boss, and the angels are the servants, uh, and the nursemaids are the servants. So now, too, the angels are higher than we are because we haven't reached our full maturity in the glory of salvation. But in glory, this will be reversed. Christ, the elect, the angels, and then the new creation. Because heaven and earth will be one, you see. There won't be the barrier anymore between heaven and earth that exists now. But the, heavenly, the earthly will be made heavenly. And will become like the pattern of the heavenly. And all will be one glorious creation. As God through Christ takes his people, the elect angels, and the whole new creation into his covenant fellowship and reveals through it all the infinite blessedness and glory of his own triune covenant life. We shall inherit the earth as well as live in heaven. This is the object of God's covenant. Now when we get to this point of those with whom God establishes his covenant and concentrate on the fact that the covenant is established only with the elect. There's one very, very important additional point that must be made, and that is this. When God establishes his covenant with the elect, he establishes it in the line of generations with believers and their seed. And that's the point I want to emphasize in the time remaining for us tonight. This has been a burning question in the history of the Reformed churches. And there has been wild disagreement on the question of what is the ground for infant baptism? Because that's the 
the main point at issue. That question is a question which can be phrased this way. How does the church and how do believing parents view their children? That's the question. I have two very fascinating books at home. Both are in Dutch, unfortunately. One, is the title is The Wonder of the 19th Century, and the other is Baptism and Covenant, or no, a, a, a Century of Strife over Baptism and Covenant. Very fascinating books. It describes all the struggles that went on in the history of the Reformed churches over this question. You're well aware of the fact, of course, that in our day, yet, there are many who take an entirely different view of the children of the covenant than we as Protestant Reformed churches take. That goes back a long way. Jonathan Edwards, for example, who lived in the last half of the 17th century and the first part of the 18th century, strong Calvinist, one who emphasized strongly the doctrine of total depravity, makes the remark in one of his writings that the children of the church, the children of believing families, are a nest of vipers. And that's how the church and believing parents must look at children born into their families. Vipers. That view persists. That view persists in almost all Reformed and Presbyterian circles. When my wife and I were in Wales, and I think it struck me, we've been in Wales a number of times, of course, and worked there for fairly lengthy periods of time. But it was this last time, two years ago, when we were in Wales particularly, particularly that it struck me that one of the underlying errors which good, solid people who want to be reformed hold is an entirely wrong view of conversion. And it's this entirely wrong view of conversion which in turn gives impetus to this constant prayer for revival. At the bottom of that view is the idea that children, all children are born totally depraved and are unbelievers. And God has not worked the work of salvation in their hearts. And so the parents hover anxiously over their children, constantly looking for signs of conversion in the hopes that these children will indicate that they are the recipients of the work of the Holy Spirit. Most of these children, of course, and that's a major problem, and that's one reason why the churches in the British Isles are filled with old people. Most of these children who are treated as unbelievers and are told they are unbelievers take the attitude, well, if I'm an unbeliever, might as well live as one. And so they when they come to a certain age, leave the church. Seems like it's almost impossible to root that idea out of the minds of many. The liberated churches, too, look at their children as unconverted. So does the Netherlands Reformed, as you know. And in that respect, there's almost no difference between the view of the Netherlands Reformed churches and the view of the liberated, and for that matter, the view of the free Reformed. Now, I, I, I don't think that there's any problem 
in seeing that how you view your children makes all the difference in the world on how you treat them. If I believe that my children are unconverted, unbelieving children, that's going to affect the way I treat them. I may hope that someday they're converted and I may anxiously provide them with Christian instruction in the hopes that that environment of Christian instruction will produce some fruit when they become a little older. But my attitude towards them is always expect the worst. They're not converted. I remember that this was the attitude of many people in our own churches in their early history. I can remember parents saying, for example, when they were discussing the sins of their teenage and older children, well, they have to sow their wild oats. Give them a chance. They will soon settle down and they'll get married and their attitude towards things will be different. That's the attitude that comes from this sort of a view. When we say and when Scripture says that God establishes his covenant in the line of generations, we mean that God establishes his covenant with elect babies of believers. That's what we mean. Obviously, of course, if the covenant is nothing else but an agreement, a treaty, a pact, a contract, babies can't sign contracts. They can't agree to conditions. They can't enter into agreements. That's impossible. So if you define the covenant in terms of a, a treaty or a, a, a contract, you're bound by the very logic of the thing to say, well, children can't belong in the covenant in any real sense of the word because they cannot agree to a contract that has to come when they come to years of discretion. Scripture teaches in many different places That the children, the elect children now, although we'll come to that in just a bit, the children of believers are also incorporated into the covenant as children. We may not say, for example, that when a baby is baptized, that at that moment, baptism makes that baby a member of the church. We do that sometimes. It's almost suggested by that crazy term we use, baptized members. Now, I know we, we mean that to distinguish between those who are members by baptism and members who have made confession of faith. But there you have it, see, members by baptism that leaves the impression as if the sacrament of baptism brings them into the church. Not so. Not so. We baptize them not because the sacrament of baptism makes them baptized members of the church, but because they are incorporated into God's covenant and are a part of the church. And baptism is a sign and seal of that truth. That's why we baptize them. I don't like that when people say baptism has now made them baptized members of the church. No, no. God establishes his covenant with babies. Now a couple of things by that, uh, about that. In the first place, that means obviously that the covenant is absolutely unconditional because babies can't fulfill any conditions. They don't even know it. They don't even know that God establishes his covenant with them. In the second place, that means that when God establishes his covenant with them, God makes them the heirs 
of the blessings of that covenant. Right away. At the moment he establishes his covenant with them. They are the heirs of the blessings of the covenant and receive those blessings in the measure of their understanding, in the measure of their age. Let that all be. But they are already heirs of the grace of the covenant. In the third place, Scripture gives us reason to believe that in many instances, if not as a general rule, even before birth, God establishes His covenant with our children. You have the instance of Jeremiah. When God called Jeremiah to be a prophet, God said to Jeremiah in so many words, I have sanctified thee from the womb. And sanctification is a blessing of the covenant. When Mary, the mother of Christ, came to Elizabeth, her cousin, and Elizabeth's babe leaped in her womb, John the Baptist was beginning his work of announcing the coming of Christ, the forerunner. He announced it to Elizabeth. He even announced it to Mary. Mary didn't even know she was pregnant yet. But he announced from the womb of Elizabeth to his mother and to Mary that they were in the presence of Christ. He could do that only because even before he was born, he was endowed with a prophetic office and gifted with the blessings of the covenant. When Jesus reprimands the disciples for thrusting away these mothers who wanted to bring their children to Jesus with the words, Suffer the little children to come unto me, he adds, For of such is the kingdom of heaven. That is, these children, babies in some instances, in their mother's arms, were citizens of the kingdom of heaven. They are incorporated into the kingdom of heaven. When the Heidelberg Catechism asks the question, why do we baptize infants? The answer of the Heidelberg Catechism is amazingly biblical. Because they, as well as adults, are included and comprehended in the church of Christ and in the covenant of grace. That's why we baptize them. Not to make them members of the covenant or of the church, but because they are. When we bring them up to be baptized, I want my child to be baptized and to bear on its forehead the mark of the covenant because I believe this child is a child of the covenant. And then you know, you know, what the question, the first question and answer is that is asked parents. Do you believe that although your children are conceived and born in sin, that nevertheless they are, how does it go? So, uh, that nevertheless they are sanctified in Christ. You believe that before they're baptized. You believe that they are sanctified in Christ and therefore as members of his church ought to be baptized. Any parent who answers yes to that says, I believe my children are members of the church and are sanctified in Christ. I believe that. That's why I bring them here. And then in the prayer after baptism, we thank and praise thee that thou hast forgiven us and our children all our sins. Isn't that a blessing of the covenant? That little tyke, maybe two weeks old, maybe three weeks old, his sins are forgiven him. We believe that. We thank thee that thou hast forgiven us and our children all our sins. 
And so when we say that God establishes his covenant in the line of generations, what we mean is exactly that, that not only we, but our children as well, are the recipients of the blessings of God's covenant. And when we take them into our homes, we take them into our homes as a covenant child. And that determines our whole attitude towards them and everything we do with respect to their education and upbringing. So, under this, of course, must be added believers and their seed. You know, I don't think it's maybe so necessary to go into that in detail, but that has all kinds of implications. These aren't my children that are here in my home. God put them here, and God says to me and to my wife and to the church, these children are part of the bride of Christ. Watch out what you do to them. You may treat them as you please. You may do with them as you will. They're part of the bride of Christ. Part of that glorious church that shall finally be perfected in heaven. You know, we sometimes say that little children can't understand anything. That's why they have children's church now. Minister, before the sermon, gets all the children there and he sits on the step and he sits all the children on the floor and he tells them some jokes and I don't know what else he does. It's all silly. And then he sends the children out. Well, they can't understand anyway. And we ourselves sometimes are doubtful of whether or not a child, though regenerated, and though possessing the Spirit, is capable of receiving the preaching as the means of grace. I don't know. I, we don't know anything about what goes on in the mind of a child, you know. We don't. I'm sure any parent who has gazed into the eyes of his, the little child she, he or she is holding in her arms, says to herself sometimes, I wonder what's going on in that little mind. Psychologists, worldly psychologists, tell us when you take a child home, you should have a room in which the child sleeps where there are pastel colors on the wall because they are peaceful, while if you have harsh blacks and oranges and bright reds, that will affect the child. I read an article not all that long ago where doctors did some experimenting with children, newborn babes. And they discovered to their surprise that a newborn babe is able to recognize the voice of its mother and distinguish it from other women's voices within an hour of birth. Now if that little baby can recognize the voice of its mother why in the name of all that's right and true can't that baby recognize the voice of the good shepherd who calls that baby by name and whose power in the call far exceeds anything that a mother or a father could possibly summon? I have stood at the side of the bed of enough dying people to know that even though they have been in a coma for days or even weeks, 
that it is still possible for the Spirit to speak. And they have responded to a word from the Scriptures. Is it impossible that a baby who is in its mother's arms and who by the Father is presented to bapt for baptism, who hears the singing of the church, who hears the organ playing, who hears the assembly of the saints confessing together their faith, is unaffected by that when the Spirit is in the heart of the child? I don't believe it. I have baptized babies where when I pronounce the baptism formula and drop the water on their foreheads with great big round eyes looked up at me as if to say, I know what you're doing. I know they don't understand very much of it. But we ought not to underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit and the voice of Christ himself who speaks through the word and through the sacraments. I tell you this little story because I don't want, to, I don't want it to be taken up wrong, but it illustrates my point. I think one of, the, one of the most treasured moments of my preaching career was one Sunday night when after the service in the crowded narthex of one of our churches, two little girls about this high, as pretty as bugs, came up to me and from down here somewhere said to me, Professor, we'd like to talk with you. And I got down on my haunches because they were such little ones. And one put her hand on this shoulder and another put her hand on this shoulder and they looked in my eyes and they said, Professor, we sure like to hear you preach. That meant more to me than a thousand compliments on a sermon from adults. Who says those children can't understand the preaching? Who says that? How do we know that? They can understand it if it's the voice of Christ who speaks powerfully through his spirit in the hearts of his own. You may say, yes, but their understanding is so little. All right, it's to the measure of their understanding then. They are those in whom works the spirit of Jesus Christ. And they hear the voice of the good shepherd call them by their name. Children of the covenant. We must view our children that way. Let us give thanks to God. We thank and praise thee, O God, for thy marvelous salvation, which thou hast so graciously bestowed upon us. We thank and praise thee that thou hast made us, says Protestant Reformed churches, the heirs of such glorious and beautiful truths. We thank and praise thee that thou art our God and the God of our sea. May tonight's discussion have the effect of instilling in us a deeper covenant consciousness that our lives may center in thy covenant, be devoted to it, flow forth from it, and that the truth of thy covenant may be so precious to us that if necessary, we will die for it. We are aware of how unworthy we are to be the recipients of such great blessings as thou hast given what have we done, O God, to make ourselves worthy of these great things thou doest for us? We humble ourselves before thee and confess our sins. We express our gratitude to thee that thy covenant is unconditional, that thou dost maintain it as thou hast established it that we may rest in the assurance 
that thou will preserve us in that covenant until thou dost take us to thyself. Bless what we have done tonight. Graciously pardon all of our sins. Bless our churches, Lord. Bless our homes and families. Bless us in thy covenant. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode. We encourage you to visit our church, Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. Our services are at 9.30am and 5pm on Sundays. If you wish to learn more about us, please contact us at hope.rwc.com at gmail.com and we'll be happy to help with any questions you may have.